chapter of the Gospel of John, John 15. As you know, I have this uh, this thing about simplicity. I uh, come by it naturally. I it goes along with my mind. I just I just like to keep things unified and and simplified and integrated. So much of of Christian truth comes to us in bits and pieces. And my mind hungers for some way to put it into package form and unify it and integrate it and state it simply. But uh, I find a passage where the Lord has already done that for us. If we simply read this passage and understand it, then we know everything there is to know about the Christian life. This is why I call this uh, particular text the complete Christian with some apologies to the old angler, Isaac Walton, the complete Christian. Because this passage tells us what we need to know in the three realms of life in which we live. There are essentially three areas that we operate in. We have relationship to God, we have relationship to the church, and we have relationship to the world. And this passage takes up each of those realms of activities and activity and describes our duty in each one. Our Lord teaches us that we are to abide in Christ. That's the sum and substance of our relationship to him. We are to love our friends in the church. And we are to witness to the world. And that says it all. That's the simplicity of it all. Now let's look at the, uh, at the text. The first eight verses describe our relationship uh, to our Lord. Verses 9 through 17 to the church and verses 18 through 27 to the world. And that's the outline that we'll follow in making our way through these, uh, through these verses. Now this is a lot of material to cover, but I deliberately wanted to cover all of this material at one message because, as I say, this gives us an integrated look at what it means to be a Christian. Now the chapter begins with a metaphor that of a vine and branches. I, I think this is what happened. Our Lord and his disciples left the upper room. They made their way down through the streets of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of Mount Zion, through the Kidron Valley, up the western slope of the Mount of Olives. And there were vineyards there in ancient times at the base of the mountain on the sunny western slope. And as they passed through the, through the uh, uh, vines, grapevines, this metaphor suggested itself to our Lord and he used it to teach the disciples about their relationship to him. Jesus says, I myself, literally, I and I alone am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it, ab it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now first we need to identify the elements in the metaphor because you can't understand the uh, illustration until you understand how he's using these uh, the various uh, aspects of the, of the illustration. He says he is the true vine in contrast to a false or spurious vine. He's contrasting himself with Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is depicted as a vine planted by God 
in a place where it could be fruitful so it could produce fruit for God. Uh, that illustration or that metaphor is used in Hosea 10, in uh, Psalm 80, and Isaiah 5. Those are the three passages where that, that type of metaphor is used and, and expanded. But when God went looking for fruit in the vine that he planted, he, instead of finding sweet grapes, he found uh, little wizened, uh, dried up, sour grapes. Now, Jesus says, in contrast to Israel, I and I alone am the true vine, planted here to bear fruit for God. So, so, so our Lord is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. He owns the vineyard and he cares for it. You apostles, he says, the, the historical fulfillment was with the apostles, but it applies to us today. We are the branches. And the fruit is the fruit of Christian conduct or character. Now, you must understand that when the apostles use, the apostles and Christ use the metaphor of fruit, they are not talking about the fruit of people one to Christ. He will take up that issue later. That's important. But we have to understand the metaphor. Fruit is the fruit of Christian character. Isaiah 5, for example, says that, that our Lord went looking for fruit in Israel. He found little dried up uh, grapes. He says, I came looking for righteousness, and what I saw was violence and crime and disorder and so forth. And in Galatians 5, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and so forth. So when we talk about fruit, we're talking about the fruit of Christian conduct. So our Lord is the vine. Our Father in heaven, God the Father, is the vine dresser. We are the branches, and the fruit is the fruit of Christian character. Now, in the, in the metaphor, he, he distinguishes between the activity or the actions of the vine dresser and the reaction of the branches. The activity of the vine dresser is twofold. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That's number one. Number two, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That's the responsibility of the vine dresser. Now, we read the first line and we say, aha, I know what that means. It means we can lose our salvation. If we are not loving, if we're not patient, if we're indifferent to the needs of others, if we just don't care about other people, then we are going to be lopped off of the vine and, uh, and lost. We will lose our salvation. Now, you have to understand this. The word that our Lord uses here for takes away is a word that is used in both the New Testament and outside the New Testament for lifting something off of the ground. For example, in John 5, John 5, 8, we're told that uh, those Pharisees that wanted to stone Jesus picked up stones from the ground. Same verb that's used here. It means to lift something up off the ground. Now, you see, what happened in ancient times is that they let their vines grow and the tendrils would grow all over the ground, and then the vine dresser would come along later and bind them into bundles and lift them up off the ground and tie them on the supports or the trellis or whatever they used to hold the hold the branches up, get it up off the ground where sunlight and air could get to it, and it would be more fruitful. Now, you see what our Lord is saying? Quite the opposite of, of what we normally say about this passage. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cuts it off? No, he lifts it up. He encourages it. He gets it up. He gets it going. He gets it growing. See? He looks at you and me when we sin, and he says, what can I do to help Roper out? How, how can I... How can I lift him up and encourage him and get him growing again? You see, now that is the redemptive attitude of the, of the vine dresser. 
It is not merely that he walks through the vineyard, sees us struggling, tramples us underfoot, rips us off the vine. That's not his heart. He does everything he can to ensure fruit. You see? That's his heart. Now, the second thing that he does is that uh, he prunes it, according to my text. It's footnoted, you'll notice, in the NASB. The word means to purge or to cleanse. It's the same root that's found in verse 3. The noun, you're already clean, that noun is exactly the same, is taken from exactly the same root as the word pruned in verse 2. I take it to be cleansing rather than pruning. Some would say those are these hard times in life when we're cut right back to the core, cut to the heart, so that we have to count upon the Lord and Him and Him alone, and out of that we produce fruit. That's true, but I don't think that's what our Lord is saying here because of verse 3. He says, you are already clean because of the Word. He's not talking about suffering. He's talking about what the Word does. The Word cleans us. Now, in those days, they didn't have insecticides and pesticides. They didn't walk around spraying everything. They used soap and water to clean the leaves. They'd get a bucket with soap and water, and they would go through the vineyard, and they would wash off every leaf to get rid of the insects and the pests and the you know, whatever it was that was retarding the growth of the vine and keeping it from being fruitful. And that's what the Word does. As we read the word, it cleans us. It gets rid of the pests that keep us from, from growing. I, I uh, was reading uh, Luke 14 the other day. The uh, story that Jesus told about the men that went into the banquet and kept moving toward the best seats. And I've never thought that passage applied to me. I don't do that. And then it dawned on me that's exactly what I do. I, I like to control things. And when I go to a board meeting or a committee meeting, it's hard for me to just sit there and not control things. I'll, I'll sit there quietly for a while, but after, after a time, I want to get in there and start making things happen. Well, that's moving up to the front of the, of the banquet hall, see? And I, it dawned on me, that's what the Lord was trying to say to me from that. See, that's, that's his washing us down, washing me down, purging me so I can, I can grow. Now, that's the responsibility of the vine dresser. He lifts us up. He encourages us when we're down and out, when we're not producing fruit. And he gives us the word. It cleanses us and encourages us on to God. That's his part. Now, our part follows in verse 4. Abide in me, he says, and I in you. Remember chapter 14 and... and uh, the, the idea that the Helper has come, and the Helper is nothing, not, no one other than our Lord, who's come to indwell us and to grant to us his life and his character. And now he says, as I abide in you, so you abide in me. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I have a... a a vine. As a matter of fact, uh, we have a couple of them in our backyard. Concord grapes uh, produces Concord grapes, and uh, I, uh, I occasionally go out there in the spring of the year and look at it, watch it grow. Uh, suppose I went out there one day, and the vine was all contorted, and the branches were twisted, and it was obviously in great distress, and it was straining and making strange noises, and I say, what are you doing? And the vine says, I'm trying to produce grapes. Ugh! 
Say, now, now wait, 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 wait. You've missed the whole point. You, you don't produce grapes that way. All you have to do is draw upon the life of the vine. And the grapes will come naturally. They're a product of the life that's already within you, you see. Now, that's what our Lord is saying. You don't have to strain and try real hard to be godlike. You don't have to clench your fists and set your jaw and, and decide that you're going to change, you're going to be more patient, you're going to stop uh, talking so much, or you're not going to have lustful thoughts anymore, or you're not going to put yourself in the center of things anymore. And uh, you, you try and you try and you try and you, you can't do it. See, that that's not what he wants us to do. He wants us to take an area like that, an area of weakness, and expose it to him and say, Lord, change me. That's what it means to abide in Christ. We begin to draw upon the life of the vine. The same relationship that a branch has to the vine, we have to Christ. We just depend on him. Just keep trusting him. Keep relying upon him. There will be failures along the way. We'll set out to, to change in some area of our life and we'll find ourselves falling down. It's all right. We're forgiven. You get up. You dust yourself off. You go on. You keep asking the Lord to change you. And little by little, he begins to change you. Most change, I think, is seen in retrospect. You look back over the last four or five years of your life and you say, why, I, I actually have become a little more patient. I'm, I'm a little kinder to people. I'm not quite as abrasive, not as, har not as harsh. Who has done that? Well, it's been the life of the Lord within, producing fruit, see? And there are certain disciplines that we maintain and help us to abide, reading the Bible and, and prayer and fellowshipping with other Christians. All of those things encourage faith, but they don't produce growth. It's not memorizing Scripture or reading the Bible or attending church services that makes you grow. What those things do is help you abide in Christ. And as you abide, you begin to grow. You see your life begin to change, and others begin to notice it as well. Now, uh, he goes on in verses 5 through 8 to describe further results of abiding. Uh, verse 5 reads, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's the first result. As you keep abiding, you bear much fruit. Now, if we don't abide and we don't grow and we don't show evidence of change in our life, it may indicate that we're not a part of the vine. That's why he says what he does in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. That's a bit of local color. He says, you know what happens to a branch that isn't isn't united to the vine. If it's broken off, it falls down on the ground, it withers up, and it dies. It doesn't produce any fruit. And if you see a Christian who is withering up, or a so-called Christian who is withering up, and you see no uh, no fruit in their life, they're not they're not becoming more loving, they're not changing at all, then you can, with, with good reason, question that they have ever been a part of the vine. Judas is a good illustration of that sort of a branch. He was never integral with Christ. He was never a part of the apostolic community. He had never committed his life to our Lord. And eventually, the, his lack, the, the fact that Christ's life wasn't in him, became evident. He withered up and fell off. Now, Jesus says that that can happen. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, that is, you, you let the word speak to you, you take the word to heart, you listen to it, and you, you believe that the Lord is able to translate truth into character. If you abide in me, 
Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. Now, again, this is not an unconditional promise. He is talking about asking for fruit. He's not talking about selfish requests that we make. He's talking about asking for change of character. If we're abiding in him, if we're counting upon him, if we're listening to the word so that we understand what our Lord wants us to be, and we begin to ask him to conform us to his character, he will do it. He will change you, you see. All you have to do is ask for it. Now, it's not automatic. It's not a matter of flipping a switch and and tomorrow you are no longer impatient with people. Or tomorrow your tongue is silenced and you don't, uh, you don't sound off at the wrong time. That's not the way it works. I don't find it happening that way. I see that the Lord speaks to me about some issue and I say, Lord, please change me there. And then I may fail. And I say, Lord, I, I did it again, but I don't want to do that anymore. Please change me there. And then I fail again. And I say, Lord, I want to change there. And that's the process. And little by little, he begins to change us. Now, that's what Paul is talking about when he, when he wrote to the Corinthians. And he says, as you look in the Word, you see the face of Jesus. And we long to look like him. And as we look at him and depend upon him, we are changed from glory to glory. That's the way he puts it. From one degree of likeness to Christ to the next. From one attribute to the next. It says, we look with longing into his face. He'll change you. He'll change you. Now, as I look at this passage, essentially what he says is, if you abide in me, the results are fruit, much fruit, more fruit. That's all he's saying. You'll grow. You'll grow. And the result is that God is glorified. Look at verse verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Do you know why that's true? Do you know why God gets great fame out of the change that takes place in your life? It's because people look at you and they see that you're a different person than you were a year ago. And they can't attribute it to the fact that you suddenly just got yourself together. But rather that God is at work in your life. That's what he's saying. God gets glory. He becomes famous as a result of what he's doing in in your life. And furthermore, he says, you prove to be my disciples. Do you see that little line in there? God is glorified, and you demonstrate that you're one of my disciples. Uh, Carolyn was telling me this morning of one of the women in our congregation who has volunteered to serve at a local hospital, and she takes it, a, you know, it's not just a matter of going into rooms and cleaning up, but she sees this as a, as a ministry of love to people, and she takes a lot of time to talk to them and and demonstrate the love of Christ for them. And she went into a man's room and began to tidy things up and fix his flowers and did a lot of extra special things for him. And it was obvious that he wanted to talk, so she stayed and chatted with him. And and after it was over, as she was getting ready to leave, he said to her, you're a Christian, aren't you? Because he had seen the love of Christ in her her face. And that's what the Lord does for you. You begin to change. And people recognize that you're changing. And they attribute it to the Lord Jesus, to his activity in, in your life. Now, that's the, uh, that's the first duty that we have. Abide in Christ. He, he's not so much concerned that we attend meetings all the time or that we read the Bible for hours at a time or that we memorize dozens of Scripture. Those things are all valuable. But they are means to the end of abiding, you see. 
a lot of people that are doing all those things, but they never grow. They're the same irascible, difficult people they were when they first they first became Christians. Say, because they don't understand that those disciplines, which are necessary, are are designed to 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 produce faith and dependence and reliance upon the Lord, so that He can do the work in our life. And as you abide in Him, the result is fruit, much fruit, more fruit. Now the second. Uh, sphere of responsibility is that of uh, our relationship to the church. That's verses 9 through 17. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Remain in my love. Just sink down deep into it. Make yourself at home in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now remember this phrase, if you keep my commandments. It's not addressed to certain Christians within the Christian community. That is a description of what it means to be a Christian. We talked about that last week. We we become a Christian by placing ourselves under the lordship of Christ, by indicating our willingness to follow him and obey him. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If we say we're Christians and we say we love him, then we'll want to do what he asks us to do. Now, that's all our Lord is saying. If you're a Christian, he's saying. If you're a true, if you're truly Christian, if you're authentically Christian, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. That's the answer to our that, that sort of low-grade depression that so often consumes us. That's the answer to the lack of fulfillment and satisfaction that we have in our life, you see. He says, if, if, if you're mine, if you're truly mine, then you abide in my love and your joy will be made full. You'll be secure. You'll feel significant. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Twice he tells us that he loves us. In verse 9 and verse 12. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you uh, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain or endure. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. And there are four things that the Lord wanted the apostles to know in this, out of this one section. The first is that he loved them. Do you know that? He says it twice in this text. He wouldn't have to say it but once, really, but he says it twice because he means it. You don't see much of Christ's love in the world, but you see it in the cross. You have to go back to the cross and remind yourself that that's the sign, that's the indication that he loves us. Maybe no one in your life really cares very much about you. Maybe your husband told you this week that he doesn't love you anymore. Or maybe he's been acting that way for weeks. Or maybe your wife told you that she doesn't love you anymore. That's, that's tough to take. That shakes us right to the very core of our being. But I want you to know that Jesus loves you. Someone asked Karl Barth once what, what he felt was the most 
profound truth in all the New Testament. Barth was the theologian who probably did more than anyone else to turn Germany away from liberal Christianity. Barth said, The greatest truth I've ever found in the New Testament is this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You just have to know that, that he loves you. He cares for you. You're very, very important to him. And he demonstrated that by laying down his life for you. That's what he means in verse 13 when he says, Greater love has no man than this, that one, myself, anyone else, that one lay down his life for his friends. Last spring, Carolyn and I were at Glen Erie, the navigator's headquarters in Colorado Springs, and on a hillside overlooking the Glen, uh, Doss Trotman, who is the founder of the uh, Navigators, is buried. His grave is located on the very top of a hill, and the headstone there is inscribed with this text, Greater love has no man than this that a man lay down his life for his friend. You can walk up on the hill and you can see the headstone there. Uh, Some years ago, uh, Trotman was with some friends in a boat in upstate New York. The boat tipped over and they were all dumped into the icy water and and uh, he was able to save a couple of people that couldn't swim well. The young woman was trying to get away from the boat, and she went under, and he went out and, and, and pulled her out of the water and brought her back to the boat, put her on the boat so she, could, uh, so she would be saved. And then <clears throat> by that time, he was exhausted, and he slipped under the water and, and drowned. And they put on his headstone, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's... That's how far we may have to go for a friend. That's how far our Lord went. He laid down his life. Uh, That's not the usual course. Normally we lay down a portion of our life for our friends. We give up an evening that we've reserved for ourselves. When we don't want to be bothered and someone shows up on our doorstep, they need help. So we give up an evening. Or we have some money that we've, we've put away for ourselves for some private, personal purchase, and, and then we discover that someone has a need, so we give that away. That, that's what it means to give up your life. That's what love is. And our Lord demonstrated that for the church, whom he designates here as his friends. Do you see how the argument develops? He says, the question might be raised because of the statement in verse 13. You, give down, you lay down your life for your friends. We might raise the question, who are my friends? And Jesus says, in essence, as you read through the passage, you are my friends. That is, the people of God, the church, the apostles, fulfilled historically in the apostles. Today he's talking about us. He says, we're we're his friends. We're his friends on two counts. I'm not going to take time to develop this. You can read it on your own. He says, I've called you friends because I tell you everything. It's on my heart. That's what a friend does. Call them on the telephone and you just unload everything that's on your heart on a friend. You're, you're much more personal and intimate and out front and honest with a friend. Jesus says, you're my friends. I've, I've just opened my heart up to you. And secondly, he says, you're my friends because I chose you. You didn't choose me. Uh, verse 16, I chose you. So the church becomes the friends, uh, the people within the church become the friends of God because he has opened, our Lord has opened his heart to us and because he has chosen us. And I think what our Lord is saying here, in essence, is love me, love my friends. That's what he's saying. 
We don't even choose our friends, you know. He chose them for us. You folks sitting out there are the Lord's friends. Those of you that know him personally, you're his friends. And if I belong to Christ and love him, then I I have to love you because I belong to you. If you're Jesus' friends, I can't turn you down. See? That's what he's saying. The, 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 the thing that we must do, he says, is, is love our friends. And he commands it twice. He says in verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then secondly in verse 17, This, is I, this I command you, that you love one another. So he comes full circle. He says it twice. I've loved you. Now you love one another. Now, I want to tell you how to love one another. It's not easy because our Lord happens to choose friends that I wouldn't choose for friends. You probably wouldn't choose me for a friend. And uh, I know some Christians that are hard to get along with. You know, they're a little bit difficult. There's a poem I quote sometimes about to live above with saints we, uh, we love. That will be endless glory. To live below with those we know, well, that's another story. You know, we we got to get along with each other here on, on this earth. And yet... We, we're sometimes very difficult to get along with. You ever thought how difficult the disciples were to get along with? How often they disappointed the Lord? How selfish they were? How, how, how hard to work with? How completely obtuse at times he would, he would teach them something and they just couldn't get the point. And he must have been felt you know, the temptation to be impatient and frustrated with him from time to time. And yet, uh, John 13 says he loved him to the end. He loved him perfectly. How did he do that? Well, verse 9 gives us the, the key. It's a secret. This is one of God's sacred secrets that he imparts to us. Jesus says, as the fathers love me, I have also loved you. You know, the, the way to love other people is just to remind yourself of God's love for you. Every time you're tempted to be unloving to someone, just, just stop and remind yourself of what our Lord did for us giving up his life for us, caring for us. Now, putting up with our foibles and, and our fragile nature and our tendency to fail, and we keep disappointing him, but he just keeps loving us. So just, just remind yourself of his love, and that sets us free to love others. That's the wellspring from which, which love flows. We love, John says in his little letter, because he first loved us. Now, that's the responsibility we have to one another. Our responsibility to the Lord is to abide in him, trust him, depend upon him, set aside everything else that we normally count on and and rely upon him. And the result will be fruit, more fruit, much fruit. And the Father will be glorified through that. Now, he says, uh, secondly, our responsibility to the church is simply to love Jesus' friends. Uh, The Quakers are quite right. This is the Society of Friends. That's how they describe themselves. They're friends. That's what we are. We're friends. So we not only have to put up with each other, we have to love each other. If we love our Lord, we're going to love his friends. And then the third sphere of responsibility is, is toward the world, and that's verses 18 through 27. If the world hates you, he says, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you get the cold shoulder from the world... If you feel their hostility, you're in good company because they didn't like the Lord either. Isn't that odd? The, the, the kindest, most thoughtful man that ever lived, the man who never did anyone any wrong, was hated by the world, so much so that they put him to death. 
So Jesus is saying, if you are experiencing hostility from the world, just know that that I I experienced it too. I understand. It always surprises new, new Christians, I think, at the turn their life takes when they become a believer. They go back to their old uh, friends and they tell them how they've become a Christian and how they've changed. And they expect their friends to get excited, and they don't. They, they don't understand. They're, and it bewilders new Christians, I think. But they should expect it. I have a friend who, uh, he, he grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. And when he became a, a Christian, he was so excited, he went back to tell his family that he, he had found the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah, and he thought they would understand. You know what they did? They went out and bought a casket, and they buried him. Not, not really, not him, but they put the casket in the ground, and they put up a headstone, and he can still see the headstone. Harry Hoffner died 1975 or whatever it is. You know, He, he was dead to them. They would not receive his letters. They'd send them back unopened. I don't know what's happened since. But that's the sort of hostility Jesus said you can expect from people. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. As a matter of fact, uh, if you want to read Peter's uh, approach to the same problem, he says the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of of the non-Christians, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousings, drinking parties, and that sort of thing. And in all this, he says they're surprised that you don't run with them to the same excess, and they malign you. In Isaiah 57, 4, Isaiah said that, that unbelievers will stick out their tongue at you. I mean, he actually uses that expression. They'll hiss at you and stick out their tongue. They'll say, boo, hiss, when you say, I, I've become a Christian. So don't be surprised, he's saying. They treated me that way, they will treat you that way. Because, he says, you don't, you don't belong in the world anymore. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. The world loves worldly people. But if you become authentically Christian and you begin to live in the world the way our Lord did, then the world's going to hate you. Now, let me say something. Some Christians probably deserve to be disliked by the world for the, for the way they live their Christian lives. They are so obnoxious, they turn everybody off. And we don't want to become that kind of Christian. But I'm just talking about normal Christian living, living out Christ's life, making manifest the invisible Lord wherever you go. If you do nothing wrong out there, they're still going to, they're still going to hate you because you're not of the world. He says, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word and they have not, then they will not keep yours either, is the point that he's making. So don't be surprised. I have a, a good friend over in the, in the state of Washington. He's a pastor of a, of a small church in a small town. It's back in the rainforest. You have to pipe sunlight in there. It's so far back. And uh, I've always felt that he was destined for great things. He's one of the best teachers I've ever heard. A, a, just a very a good student of Scripture and a very clear communicator of the Word. And, and I've always felt this is, you know, this guy is going to make it big in the Christian world. And I, I kept praying that someday the world would recognize this man's gifts. Because there he was stuck back in this situation where it's very difficult for him. It's not an easy place to minister, and it's not an easy church in which to minister. It's been tough. He's been there for about eight years now. And I keep thinking, one of these days, 
He's going to make the big step. Well, he had his opportunity this last week. Very uh, good church over on the West Coast. Excellent church. Invited him to come and candidate. And uh, he went over and talked to them, and they just loved it. They loved his teaching and his manner and everything about him. And and uh, they called him to be their pastor. I mean, this is a church of uh, it's a much larger church than this one. And very well-known, prestigious church over there. This is this is it. He has this is where he belongs. He turned them down. And I called him up and I, I said, "How come you did that?" And he said, "Well, I've been reading uh, Francis Schaeffer's little essay. No little people, no little places. And I realized that the people in this town are not little people, and this is not a little place." And he said, I'm going to stay here and minister to these people until they carry me out feet first. And he means it. Until God extrudes him. That's the word that he used. Until God extrudes him from this place. He said, I'm going to stay right here. Now, you see, God's uh, uh, will for most pastors is to be upward mobile. I don't know why that is, but it, you know, it just always seems to work out that way. Bigger churches, more urbane situations. Here's a man that's willing to work in a little place in obscurity, to never be seen again if necessary because he feels that that's where God wants him to be. Now, that is such a strange way of looking at things that no one understands him. And certainly no one in the world who doesn't walk to that drumbeat will understand him, you see. Hey, that is craziness. But here's the man who wants to do God's will. That's what matters. Now, I think what our Lord is saying is that we're going to act in ways that distress people in the world if we are authentically Christian. So don't be surprised if the world hates you. They hated our Lord, they will hate you. Nevertheless, we are to witness to the world. See, that's the context of this statement about witnessing. Hostility in the world, nevertheless, he says, you're to witness to it. When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. The helper, as you know, is the Holy Spirit, the one called alongside, the one called within. Uh, and we learn from, from chapter 14 that this is none other than our Lord himself who comes to indwell. So when the Lord comes in the person of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, I think that's uh, what he means by the one who proceeds from the Father. There have been miles of ink written on this particular subject. What does it mean for the Spirit to proceed from the Father? But I think he's simply talking about Pentecost. On that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out by the Father upon the, the, the believers of that time, the early uh, believers. He says that when that happens, he... Did you... Did, did you Look at the text. He will bear witness. In other words, his witness is antecedent to ours. For some reason, we've turned that around. We say, we witness, and then the Holy Spirit moves in and corroborates our witness. But that is not what our Lord is promising here. He's saying that the Holy Spirit goes before us to witness to a hostile world. And he'll tell us later precisely what that witness is consists of specific things which the Holy Spirit uh, says to people out there that whose hearts are not yet ready to hear the gospel. The Spirit goes first to witness, and our witness corroborates His. You see that? 
Now, that helps tremendously because I don't need to worry about the hostility in the world because I know that the Spirit of God is speaking here and there and here and there to people. And often their opposition is nothing more than uh, the sort of thing that happened to Paul. You know, Paul was breathing out threatenings against the church. and He was going up to Damascus to kill Christians. And the Lord appears to him and he says, Paul, it sure is hard for you to kick against the goad, isn't it? And you get this picture of God just giving Paul the goad every time he turns around. And he's like an ox that's kicking the goad. And you see, his hostility came out of the fact that God was convicting him. The person of the Holy Spirit was convicting him of truth. And when Ananias... Or when the Lord appeared to him, he responded, you see. And uh, that, that gives us great hope. That's what the Lord is doing out there in the world. Despite the hostility, he's speaking to people about their relationship to him. I remember once walking across the campus of the Foothill Junior College, uh, uh, Foothill Junior College in Los Alamos Hills, California, a number of years ago. And there was a young man sitting under a tree reading a newspaper. His name was Alan Hugel. He was in the aeronautics program there at Foothill, and I didn't know him, and I was waiting for another student who didn't show up, and so I began to chat with Alan, and, and uh, after a while I said, tell me, do you have any interest in spiritual things? And he said, you know, it's really odd that you should ask me, because I was sitting right here thinking that I, I need to settle my relationship with God. He had just come back from Korea. He had a Christian first sergeant who had witnessed to him, and, and the Lord had been speaking to him even before that, and opening his heart, and he was just sitting there waiting to hear the gospel. There are people like that all over the place whose hearts the Spirit of God has opened. His witness precedes ours. He will witness of me, Jesus says, and you will witness also. Now, note that our witness is a witness to Christ. That's all a witness is. We just tell people what Christ has done for us. That's why I'm a little bit uneasy about uh, methods, classes, and evangelism. We teach them, but we don't want to give the impression that you get a few... uh, you memorize a few statements and you can go out and effectively witness. No, really, the best witness is just someone who tells what happened to them. They talk about the authenticity of their relationship to Christ. That's the most impelling witness of all. Just go out and start sharing Christ with people. Start giving witness. And you, and you know that the Holy Spirit has gone before to open the way. Do you remember, oh, about a month ago, After a morning service, I ask you all to pray that God would give you an opportunity within the next month to share the gospel with someone. I got a letter this last week from a woman in our congregation who had taken it a step further. She prayed that God would give her an opportunity to lead someone to Christ before the end of the year. And uh, she didn't know how she was going to do that because, as she put it, she's not very good at one-on-one witnessing, but she was asked to to go speak to women's groups here in the area. And she's been traveling from place to place, just sharing her faith. And she tells me in the letter that she not only, that the Lord not only gave her one, but 13 women have come to Christ in the last month because she's been witnessing to what Christ has done in her life. Now, you see, it, that's, it's also simple. Our Lord wants us to abide in Him, trust Him, depend on Him. And in love one another. And out of that relationship, the security, the strength that comes from knowing that we're loved of God and secure in Him, to begin to share our faith with others and count on Him for the results. If we do that, we do that. We're doing what God has called us to do. We're complete Christians. And we're going to have an enormous impact upon this community and upon the entire world. 
Isn't that simple? Isn't that simple? Abide in Christ. Love your friends. Witness to the world. Let's pray. Would, would you ask the Lord to disentangle your heart from all the things you have been trusting in? Education, money, and influence, property that you own, the kind of personality that you have, the natural beauty that, that's been given to you, the physical strength that's yours, all the things that we're inclined to, to trust in. When you ask him to uproot your faith and your dependency from those things and just put them down in the Lord Jesus and begin to abide in him. And ask him as a result to begin to change your life as the word begins to speak to specific sins and issues in your life one at a time to expose those to his presence and ask him to to deal with them, to put them away. Would you do that? And then he says, if, if we ask him, He'll supply the love that we need for our friends. So just remind yourself of that promise and remind yourself of the great love that that God has for you that was demonstrated in the cross. There's such a great sense of security that comes from knowing that we're loved by him, secure in that love. So just settle down in that love and ask him, to give you out of that, that relationship a love for others. Even the people in your life that, that are not lovable. And then would you ask him to go before to prepare the way for you so you can give witness and ask him to give you the courage to share your faith with someone this week. Despite the hostility and the coldness, the indifference of people around us to spiritual things. We know that down deep in their hearts there's a, there's a hunger for something more. Just ask him to make you sensitive to that hunger and willing to share it, share your, your faith as you have an opportunity to do so. Lord, we thank you for keeping things simple for us. Any of us can understand these, these duties. <laughs> And you've said, if, if we love you, that we'll, then we'll do what you've asked us to do. And so we submit to you. We, we ask that you would provide everything that we need to fulfill these requirements. We know that in our own strength we can't do them. We thank you for your enabling presence. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.